Tucker Carlson has to say tonight. He's receiving a lot of abuse for uh, using replacement rhetoric that's supposedly leading to an epidemic of these white shooters like the one we had in Buffalo. So let's go straight to Tucker Carlson. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight there was a horrifying, we're sad to tell you, a horrifying amount of violence in the United States over the weekend, as increasingly there is. Over just two days, at least 104 Americans were shot to death in major American cities. That's a lot. How many? Well, for perspective, on the single deadliest day of the Iraq War, that would be January of 2005, a total of 37 Americans died. So what's happening in our cities right now looks a lot like a war, even if we rarely acknowledge it. Dallas, Milwaukee, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, many other metro areas recorded murders over the weekend. That's typical now. In St. Louis, 13 people were shot, five of them fatally. In Chicago, 33 were gunned down. Five of those died. In Laguna Woods, California, a Chinese immigrant from Las Vegas walked into a Presbyterian church and shot six elderly Taiwanese parishioners. Police say he was motivated by some kind of political and ethnic hatred. And of course, most famously of all, on Saturday afternoon, a teenager in a mock military uniform walked into a grocery store in Buffalo and shot more than a dozen strangers with a rifle. No doubt you've seen accounts of this on the news. What you probably haven't seen are details about any of the 10 Americans who were murdered in that store in Buffalo. You may not even know their names, much less who they were or who they loved. Most of them were black. We know that. But beyond the way they look, not a lot has been reported about them because the coverage hasn't been about them. Nor, in fact, has it really been about the gunman. He was an 18-year-old called Peyton Gendron. Gendron was mentally ill. Everyone around him knew that, including his teachers and the local police. Less than a year ago, Gendron was committed to a mental hospital after threatening to murder his classmates at a school graduation ceremony. So on Saturday, after he made good on his longstanding threat to open fire into a crowd, Gendron left an 180-page letter that he said would explain his motives. You probably heard this document described as a racist manifesto. But that's not quite right. It's definitely racist, bitterly so. Gendron reduces people to their skin color. That's the essence of racism, and it's immoral. But what he wrote does not add up to a manifesto. It is not a blueprint for a new extremist political movement, much less the potential inspiration for a racist revolution. Anyone who claims that it is, is lying or hasn't read it. Instead, Gendron's letter is a rambling pastiche of slogans and internet memes, some of which flatly contradict one another. The document is not recognizably left-wing or right-wing. It's not really political at all. The document is crazy. It's the product of a diseased and organized mind. At one point, Gendron suggests that Fox News is part of some global conspiracy against him. He writes like the mental patient he is, disjointed, irrational, paranoid. Now, that's true, not that it makes the atrocities he committed easier to bear. If your daughter was murdered on Saturday in Buffalo, you wouldn't care why the killer did it or who he voted for. But the truth about Peyton Gendron does tell you a lot about the ruthlessness and dishonesty of our political leadership. Within minutes of Saturday's shooting, before all of the bodies of those 10 murdered Americans had even been identified by their loved ones, professional Democrats had begun a coordinated campaign to blame those murders on their political opponents. They did it, they said immediately. Patron Gendron was the heir to Donald Trump, they told us. Trumpism committed mass murder in Buffalo. And for that reason, it followed logically, we must suspend the First Amendment. That's hardly an exaggeration of what they're saying. Here's a selection from yesterday's Sunday shows. Uh, social media companies and law enforcement uh, have not done enough uh, to monitor, to ban, to restrict, and to limit hate speech on their sites. Hate speech is not freedom of speech. As you know, the First Amendment uh, does not pr uh, protect hate speech. I'll protect the First Amendment any day of the week, but you don't protect hate speech. You don't protect incendiary speech. You're not allowed to scream fire in a crowded theater. There are limitations on speech, and right now we have seen this run rampant. So what is hate speech? Well, it's speech that our leaders hate. So because a mentally ill teenager murdered strangers, you cannot be allowed to express your political views out loud. That's what they're telling you. That's what they've wanted to tell you for a long time. But Saturday's massacre gives them a pretext, a justification. You have to ask yourself, who behaves like that? 
What sort of person uses mass murder as an excuse to give a campaign speech or seize more political power? We'll find out tomorrow when Joe Biden travels to the scene of this atrocity in Buffalo to speak to the country. We haven't seen an advanced copy of his remarks, but we can guess what we will hear. Biden's approval rating appears to be the lowest ever recorded for a president this century, lower than Donald Trump's. That is a disaster for his party. The Democratic Party will suffer for this in this fall's elections. Biden still has time to change course and fix it. He could try to improve the lives of voters who are dissatisfied with him. That is entirely possible. That's what politicians typically do when they're down. They listen to the people who might reelect them. But Biden doesn't plan to do that. And we know for a fact because Politico has reported it. Instead, Biden has decided to attack people who disapprove. According to Politico, quote, Biden has taken to telling his aides that he no longer recognizes the GOP, which he now views as an existential threat to the nation's democracy. End quote. People who disagree with Joe Biden, according to Joe Biden, are now a, quote, existential threat to the nation, like Al-Qaeda or climate change. A threat that by definition is so profound, we must declare war upon it if we're to survive. Now, keep in mind, this threat that Biden is referring to is you. He's talking about his fellow Americans. No president has ever spoken like this, ever. Joe Biden does it regularly, and he's certain to do it again tomorrow. But most painful and destructive at all, Biden is likely to use racial wounds in order to make his point. There is no behavior worse than this. All race politics is bad, no matter what flavor those politics happen to be. No race politics is better than any other. All of it is poison. Race politics subsumes the individual into the group. It erases people. It dehumanizes them. Race politics elevates appearance over initiative and decency and all the other God-given qualities that makes every person of every color unique, yet morally equal to every other person. And above all, race politics always makes us hate each other and always in a very predictable way. So let's say you were to make identity politics mandatory in your country as they have. How could you be surprised when that leads, as it inevitably will, to white identity politics? Well, you could not be surprised. You did it, and it was always going to happen. And then what happens next? Nothing good. Race politics is a sin. Race politics always leads to violence and death. They learned that lesson in Rwanda in 1994. Identity politics ended in genocide in Rwanda that killed 800,000 people. And in response to those horrors, the Rwandans did something that we might learn from. They moved in the opposite direction from the one that Joe Biden is currently taking in the United States. Quote, ethnicity has already been stripped out of school books and rubbed off government identity cards, reported the New York Times. Government documents no longer mention Hutu or Tutsi, and the country's newspapers and radio stations steer clear of the labels as well. Most dramatic is how Rwanda's 8 million people now shun the identifications, the racial identifications, that seemed to loom so large 10 years ago as Hutu extremists began their mass killings, end quote. They have de-emphasized race in Rwanda, intentionally and systematically. Rwandan citizens are citizens first, members of racial or tribal groups second or not at all. Result, there have been no more genocides in Rwanda, and that could easily be the path forward for this country too. There was only one answer to rising racial tension, and that's to de-escalate and do what we have done and tried to do for hundreds of years, which is work toward colorblind meritocracy and treat people as human beings created by God rather than as faceless members of interest groups that might benefit some political party or, or other. We have a moral duty to do this because all people have equal moral value, no matter what they look like. All lives matter, period. That's not the determination of the U.S. government. That's the determination of God, and it's true. And most Americans already believe it. They would like to see a return to the American way of life. And the American way of life is meritocracy. Judge me by what I do, not by how I look, by the content of my character, not the color of my skin. We have a monument on the mall to this. And yet suddenly... Every voice in power is leading us in the opposite direction. And what's the terminus of that journey? It's destruction. Everybody knows this. Only our leaders stand in the way of fixing a problem that is growing worse by the day. 
Glenn Greenwald has watched all of this. He's an independent journalist. His work is on Substack, among other places. He joins us tonight. Glenn, thanks so much for coming on. So I, you know, there's, you know, every mass shooting, of course, is a tragedy. Every murder is a tragedy. Every death is a tragedy. But how chilling was it to watch the immediate mobilization of a political party using the pretext of a killing to make baldly political points? I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think one of the things a healthy society does is unites whenever there's a horrific act that violates the values of all decent people. We saw that in the wake of 9-11, for example, for a few days or a couple of weeks. But unfortunately, another path can be taken and often is by political leaders. You might remember in 1995 when there was that hideous attack on the federal courthouse in Oklahoma City. The Clinton administration immediately seized on that to say we need a backdoor access to be able to control the Internet where this information is spreading. After 9-11, with the war on terror, right wing leaders like Newt Gingrich explicitly argued we need to amend the First Amendment to control the ability of Muslim radicals to be able to spread their hateful message. So, so often these uh, crises are seized upon by leaders to demand more yes. power. This idea that, for example, the First Amendment doesn't protect hate speech is completely false. The Supreme Court has said the opposite. But I also think that what's critical to note is that every political ideology, every last one, has psychopaths or extremists who carry out violence in the name of that ideology and to try and blame your political opponents or to ascribe fault or guilt to people who share that ideology is a completely morally atrocious act because you're exploiting the corpses and not expressing sadness over them. Shouldn't there at least be a pause? I mean, I, you know, I think all of us can learn lessons from tragedy. Why do people do what they do? How did this happen? I think we should know. I think that of all tragedies. But it, it seems like the period where we sort of pause and let the sadness sink in, and remember we're all united by our ultimate deaths, which we are, makes us equal as people, that time has evaporated. It's like instant now. And I wonder what that says about our leaders. I was really amazed at the not just the, the the rapidity with which this coordinated messaging campaign emerged to try and blame this network and political opponents, but also just how unanimous it was, particularly since the only thing that was known about the person who carried out this massacre was a 181-page, very densely written manifesto that, as you said, had a wide range of kind of unrelated ideas. He called himself a left-wing authoritarian on the one hand, a fascist on the other hand. There was no way these people could have taken the time to have read that, to have learned about the mental health of this person. They didn't care what the facts were. They, they saw an opportunity in those corpses laying on the ground, and the opportunity was political and exploitative, and they seized on it together and quickly in a way that made clear that their concern or sadness for the victims was a complete pretense. They instantly weaponized it before anything was known. Anyone who shows no reverence in the face of death should make us nervous. It's a sign of ruthlessness and bad character. I, I think that anyone's death, any place, I, I, I believe that. I know you do too. Glenn Greenwald, thank you so much. Thanks, Tucker. So as the usual activists who use the murders in Buffalo over a weekend to attack their political opponents, including, as you just heard, this channel on Twitter, Mike Davis at the Article 3 Project pointed out that it's, quote, disgusting and insane to exploit this tragedy. Twitter suspended him for pointing that out. So someone who said, actually, we shouldn't jump to quick and dirty partisan conclusions from a mass murder was banned from saying that by Twitter. So this tells you a lot. Let that sink in for a moment. In the meantime, we want to bring on Harmeet Dillon, who is the country's premier civil rights attorney, CEO of the Center for American Liberty. And we're happy to have her join us now. Harmeet, thanks so much for coming on. So it seems to me at base, not even a political point, but a humane point to say, hold on a second. You know, we don't know everything. Let's just bow before the sadness of this moment and not jump to politically convenient conclusions from it. Try to take other people's rights away on the basis of it. And that's now hate speech. Tell me how this works. 
Well, this is exactly how Twitter has been working, as well as the other social media companies for the last few years. We've now learned that the government has a lot to do with this. But in short, this is a microcosm. Something horrible happens. Uh, politically powerful voices with blue checks and a lot of followers immediately began spreading talking points. Those are propagated and spread further by these algorithms at the tech companies, which are uh, staffed by these woke, uh, you know, young people put out there. And then you have this story that has nothing to do with what actually happened. It's like a digital game of telephone, the game we used to play when we were kids. And so here, Mike Davis simply pointed out that before we rush to judgment, let's look at a few things that this person actually said. He took a couple of screenshots and he put them out there of the shooter's own words, which are very different than the narrative that the Biden administration and their lackeys in the media have been pushing. And he got suspended from Twitter for supposedly, uh, you know, it's unclear. They didn't even explain why. We assume that it's because of this tweet. Now, Mike is very well connected. He's clerked on the Supreme Court. He has a lot of allies in Washington. And a lot of people complained about this over the last few hours. And Twitter took notice of those powerful people talking back, and they unsuspended him today, saying that it was a mistake and an error. But thousands of people every day are taken down from social media for doing exactly what Mike did, which is saying truthful or thoughtful things that are not uh, in the narrative that the left is trying to push, and their voices are silenced, sometimes permanently. So this is what's wrong with social media. Users have no rights. Mike had no way of knowing that what he put out there was going to get him suspended and not able to speak on this important topic. And this really needs to change, Tucker. There's so many things wrong with this picture that really limit our speech, and the end result Tucker, is to make people like you and me think twice before we say truthful things on social media for fear of not being able to say the next truthful thing. And that's not healthy. Well, it's, it's so unhealthy. And by the way, it makes people paranoid and afraid. And it gives rise to conspiracy theories because clamping down on speech always does that. Why, why not let people speak? And the consenting adults who choose our leaders in this, quote, democracy can decide for themselves who's right on the basis of whatever facts are presented. I mean, it seems counterproductive. If you want to make people less crazy, if you want to lower the temperature, if you want to make the country more stable, you don't crack down on speech. That's the last thing you do, correct? Absolutely. And the antidote to speech that you don't like is more speech, not silencing it. Glenn was exactly right. This has been done by the left and by the right. You know, the Patriot Act is one of the big mistakes of my lifetime and by our government. But you have people even on the, I wouldn't even call her on the right, Liz Cheney came out today and put out a very divisive statement blaming House leadership for white supremacy, anti-Semitism, and so on. I mean, you know, really get a hold of yourself. That's really not what happened here in this circumstance. And crazy people do crazy things. And the mental health failure in this situation is going unexamined because that is not the narrative that the left wants to push. And the left is in control of the narrative that we get to see. And, and again, nothing wrong with hearing different viewpoints. It doesn't kill me to hear different viewpoints. Uh, Project Veritas has, has a video out today showing that exactly is what, what is happening is that Twitter employees acknowledge that the left is intolerant of different viewpoints. Points. The right is happy to hear different viewpoints. And so guess what? If you want the left on your platform, you have to silence the right. Uh, again, I hope that we have some changes at Twitter and other big social media yeah. because it can be a very powerful tool to be able to hear and learn more about things you didn't know. And maybe you might change your mind about something if you're able to hear a different viewpoint. I agree with that. And I'm sad to hear that about Liz Cheney, smart person who's very troubled and motivated by hate uh, in a way that's disfiguring her, I would say. Sad. Hermit Dillon, great to see you tonight. Thank you. Thank you. So all of a sudden, there's a push in the United States Senate to rush two European countries next to Russia into NATO. What would be the effects of that? Has anyone thought this through? Probably not. The Senate this week on the verge of approving yet another $40 billion, quote, for Ukraine. So this adds up to escalation of a war most Americans didn't think we were in. What is happening here exactly? We have a right to ask, and we will, with Tulsi Gabbard, who joins us next. Hey, keep an eye on uh, Tucker Carlson as the evening proceeds. I, I think he had a fairly commonsensical reaction to what happened in, in Buffalo. And I think the absurd hysterical reaction is to say we, we need less free speech. 
Like, who on earth w would react by, by saying we need less free speech? So a lot of attacks on Tucker and Fox News over the weekend. I'm laughing because this is one of about 10 stories that I know you've covered um, where the government shows preference to people who have shown absolute contempt for our customs, our laws, mm. our system itself, and they're being treated better than American citizens. Now, I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting mm. ballots, with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's that's what's happening, actually. Let's just say it. That's mm. true. Mm. If, if look, mm. if this was happening in your house, if you were in sixth grade, for example, and without telling you, your kid, your parents adopted a bunch of new siblings and gave them brand new bikes and let them stay mm. up later and help them with their homework and gave them twice the allowance that they gave you, you would say to your siblings, you know, I think we're being replaced by by kids that our parents love more. And it would be kind of hard to argue against you because look at the evidence. So right. this matters on a bunch of different levels, but on the most basic level, it's a voting rights question. In a democracy, one person equals one vote. If you change the population, you dilute the political power of the people who live there. So every time they import a new voter, I become disenfranchised as a mm. current voter. So I don't understand why we don't understand this. I mean, everyone wants to make a racial issue out of it. Ooh, the you know white replacement theory. No, no, no. This is a voting rights question. I have less political power because they're importing a brand new electorate. Why should I sit back and take that? The power that I have yeah. as an American guaranteed at birth is one man, one vote, and they're diluting it. No, they're not allowed to do that. Why are we putting up with this? Okay, so that's what uh, Tucker Carlson is being attacked for, essentially... Uh, making the point that uh, the United Nations is all on board with replacement migration. So uh, the great replacement, right, is supposed to be a major conspiracy theory, but it's being pushed by the United Nations. Replacement migration, a solution to declining and aging populations. So this UN report says that the United States, the United Kingdom, Russia, Korea, Japan, Italy, Germany, and France, they all need replacement migration to offset population decline, a population aging resulting from low fertility and mortality rates. United Nations is all on board with replacement migration. So if you call it the great replacement, then you're an evil conspiracy theorist. And I don't use that language. I don't believe in that theory. I don't find it helpful. Uh, but I don't think the idea is genocidal either. But clearly a lot of our elites are pushing replacement migration, that a lot of Democratic activists are pushing replacement migration. They rejoice that uh, whites who are more likely to vote for Republicans than non-whites in America, that their percentage of the population is steadily decreasing. And so Democrats are ecstatic that uh, America has so much immigration in, in large part because immigrants largely vote for the left-wing party. So the people has less and less power, the more divided the people are. So how do elites rule? Elites rule through pluralism. The people become divided into all sorts of subsections, and then the elites pick off one or two groups with whom they make an alliance. So currently, the elites have an alliance with the high-low against the middle. So the elites dominate the upper classes, and they also dominate the lower classes, and they tag-team and team up against the middle. 
So the more pluralistic society is, the more divided it is, and the less the people can speak with one voice to protest what elites are doing. Populism means that virtue resides with the people, but you don't have a people when your, your nation is just divided into all these tranches where diversity is regarded as a strength. What does diversity mean? Diversity means that you have very little in common with your next-door neighbor and, and with your fellow resident and fellow citizen. So it would seem to me the more you have in common with the people around you, the more likely you are to form ties with them. That's just an existential fact. So in communities where there is a ton of diversity, you find very little public spiritedness. You find very little volunteering. You find very little social cohesion. You find reduced levels of happiness. You find people kind of tuck their heads in, essentially, like turtles. They find insular parts of, of communities where they feel comfortable. Otherwise, they are restrained. They stay at home. They watch a lot of TV. All right. Where do you find the most volunteering in the United States? In the, in the communities that are the most white. This isn't because, you know, whites are just so awesome. But people are far more likely to volunteer and to sacrifice and to do kind things for their neighbors if they feel a great deal in common with their neighbors. So, you know, racial identity is just one form of identity. There's also religious identity. There's linguistic identity, right? There, there are values identity. There are all sorts of different forms of identity. But obviously, the more you have in common with other people, the better your chances of forming friendships with them. And the, the better the chances are that you will sacrifice for them and the more likely you are to get along. So replacement migration means increased diversity, increased pluralism, which means the people have less and less power, less and less ability to challenge what the elite's doing. And I'm not a populist. I don't believe the people are always right or even usually right. I mean, I think frequently, frequently the elites are right as against, as against the people. So I'm not a populist. But I think the people should be able to speak up. A few months ago, Russia invaded Ukraine. That's Russia's fault. But you'd have to be an idiot not to ask the context in which this happened. Why did it happen exactly? Well, one of the reasons it happened is because policymakers in the United States kept pushing Ukraine to join NATO. Net benefit to the United States from Ukraine joining NATO? Zero. Net benefit to Ukraine? Zero. And they knew that, and they kept doing it. And now we have a war. Not, Russia did it, but they did nothing to prevent it. It's getting worse. Now, Mitch McConnell in the United States Senate says that we need, for some reason, to fast-track NATO membership to two more nearby countries, Sweden and Finland. Here it is. We hope to do it as rapidly as possible. Your question is, what is rapidly as possible? And I think uh, certainly we hope to achieve it before the August recess, when Congress typically goes out of session. Obviously, that would be well before the fall election. Uh, with regard to the size of the vote, I think it will be very significant, not unanimous, but very significant. NATO was already the most successful military alliance in world history. Now it's going to be even stronger than it was. Okay, so NATO is the most successful military alliance in world history. Yes, it, it kept the Soviet Union from invading Western Europe. What is the point of NATO now? Can anyone explain? No, no one can explain. And instead of explaining, we hear demands that NATO expand as rapidly as possible. Damn the consequences and the benefits to the United States. What are the benefits exactly? Again, silence. Republican senators, and of course joining their friends on the Democratic side, also plan to send $40 billion to Ukraine immediately. That vote, we believe, is on Wednesday. Of course, we'll fill you in more tomorrow. To promote that bill, Mitch McConnell just toured Kiev, along with Senator Susan collins and John Barrasso of Wyoming, and John Cornyn of Texas. Now, you may be wondering, how could they just walk around a war zone like that? Isn't it dangerous? We don't know the answer, but it's certainly interesting. You also might be wondering about priorities here. Why is Congress so focused on Ukraine, 
but you can't find baby formula. You can't even fill your truck because things, our economy, are declining really rapidly. Don't ask questions. According to Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Texas, asking questions like that, or really any questions at all, thinking you're a citizen, makes you, quote, pro-Russia. The bad arguments that our side is making is very depressing, and they're almost pro-Russia. People are saying, well, we can't put baby formula on our shelves, but we're sending money to Ukrainians. And my response to that is, you know how much baby formula you can buy with $40 billion? None. None, because it's not a money issue. It's a manufacturing issue. And so we have to solve it with, frankly, letting the F telling the FDA to approve uh, safe baby formula and import it from Europe. You know, that, that'd be one solution. It is not America first when you let Russia and China do whatever they want around the world and establish their version of a global order. That puts America last because we cannot prosper in a global order led by Russia and China. Yeah. Do you have any idea what you're talking about, Dan Crenshaw? No. But the point is, anyone who disagrees with Dan Crenshaw is pro-Russia, frankly. Well, frankly, Dan Crenshaw is attempting to deflect from answering obvious questions like why the concern over Ukraine's borders and no concern about the border of your own state, Texas. That's a fair question. Not pro-Russia. It's, in fact, pro-American. Chelsea Gabbard is pro-American, a lifelong Democrat, former presidential candidate. We're always grateful to have her join us tonight. Chelsea Gabbard, thanks so much for coming on. So if you were in the House still, you laughed less, left after the end of last Okay, so a lot of hysterical reactions to the Buffalo shooting, and, and among the most hysterical, unsurprisingly, is Richard Spencer. So the, the traits that make Richard Spencer such an exciting live streamer and pundit are also the very traits that make him overall a terrible analyst, a terrible life example, a terrible model, and, and a terrible leader because he's so excitable. He's so looking to surf every new wave. He wants to be the bride at every wedding. He wants to be the corpse at every funeral, always needs to be the center of attention. And uh, he has this idea that only he can, can stop this scourge of white supremacist mass murderers. He wants to end anonymity online. He wants to severely curtail free speech online. Years ago, he said there's not going to be any free speech in the ethno state. He wants to completely end websites like 4chan. Right? What about websites like Twitch that, uh, that streamed, that live streamed this massacre? That, doesn't he feel like uh, maybe, maybe, maybe uh, Twitch has some responsibility? I, I'm not mad at Twitch. If you put a technology out there, people are going to abuse it. So I, I blame the shooter, and that's where I put my primary blame. But I want to play just a minute here from Richard yesterday. You discuss some of Nick Fuentes' personality flaws, like having unrealistic views of women in 1950s America. Nick's flaws led to the recent implosion of America. Okay, hold on. Nick's flaws led to the recent implosion of America. I guess you means America first. What are or were your own personality flaws that call, cause personal and movement setbacks in 2017, 2018? Okay, that's fair. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I have a degree of narcissism and, and kind of an arrogant personality. And I, I want things to be, um, I, I think that I'm right and everyone should follow me. I mean, I, I, I think I, I have those types of flaws. Um, I think it's fair to criticize me as such. Um, I do think that, the, I mean, what I was getting at in my podcast monologue discussion of Nick Fuentes, I, I, I think there are some really deep flaws within any kind of young alt-right movement and where people yeah and uh, many of the flaws that he sees are of course that they're in himself so let's 
check in with a little bit more here. And from you've Tucker. been smeared since day one. You've never lost your composure or moved off course. And I, I definitely admire the way you've handled the attacks. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, thank you. Thank you. So for years now, we've taken UFOs seriously. Oh, you're crazy. Take UFOs seriously. Actually, they're worth taking seriously. Kind of a big deal, no? Well, Congress no. is about to hold the very first public hearing on the question in 50 years. We're going to get a preview of that straight ahead. No, no, no. Not, uh, we not really worth America. taking seriously. Okay, so Richard thinks that it's really only him who's standing between us and the end of civilization as we know it. So this is from his uh, race-baiting, race that's the name of this uh, podcast phone call that he released uh, yesterday of, talking to people on his Substack. The impact of earlier waves of censorship in making sort of, you know, these borderline people who kind of sympathize with some kind of alt-right agenda go over the edge with frustration since they have no representation in the public space. Something to think about, at least. I agree. I mean, it's, it's just a very difficult nut to crack. Um, I mean, I, I would say this about like Brendan Tarrant. Um, I mean, I think I said this and I, let me reiterate it and, and I'll listen to myself and I'll see if I agree with it. I mean, I, I think I said something fairly provocative back in 2019 and I said, you know, it's either him or me. And what I meant by that is that if you suppress um, the the people who are making legitimate points and are kind of are above board and are going to take responsibility for their war words and are not going to engage in violence, then and if you suppress that, then you're you're going to kind of get a lot of the Brendan Terrence or um, the uh, who is the other person you mentioned? I, I forgot his name at the moment. Um, the, Robert the, Bowers. Bowers. Robert Bowers, exactly, who shot up the uh, um, temple, uh, Jewish temple. Uh, I guess, was that 2019 as well or 2018? I think it was 2018. Anyway, a um, few years ago. Uh, and that that's a rather provocative thing to say. It, it almost sounds like a threat, but I do think it carries some weight. I mean, these these serious issues need to be articulated and just suppressing like rational discourse it does lead these people to conclude. Yeah, but Richard, you want to suppress a lot of this discourse. I mean, come on. How many people really think that it's it's just uh, Richard Spencer standing between us and the apocalypse? How about some real talk and some sober talk on these mass shootings? Number one, they're exceedingly rare in a country of 330 million people. They account for a very small percentage of the overall murder rate. There is not an epidemic of white supremacists going out there and murdering people. That far more people of color murder white people and rape white people than white people are out there murdering and raping people of color. So if you just want to look at like racial victims of crime, right? Blacks are the most victimized group, primarily victimized by other blacks, right? Which racial group is killing the overwhelming majority of black murder victims? It, it's fellow blacks. So ideology doesn't really play much of a role in mass shootings, right? This has been study, studied pretty extensively. Uh, fewer than 5% of these mass shooters have a history of involuntary 
mental uh, commitment or some kind of adjudication of dangerousness that would have prohibited them from purchasing a firearm. They, they, overall, these people with serious mental illness do seem to be overrepresented among mass shooters, but this does not imply that serious mental illness causes mass shooters, just as we cannot include, conclude that being a young man causes mass shootings. I'm reading from academic survey, a meta-analysis of the literature. So past decade has seen an increase in the percentage of mass public shootings that are related to fame seeking and sometimes on behalf of a broader ideology so perhaps this somewhat small rise in fame and attention seeking motivations among mass public shooters has contributed to escalation in the lethality of these incidents but overall there's very little evidence that mass shooters tend to be politically motivated right most descriptors of the partisanship of individual shooters is highly speculative. It comes from, you know, very early reports. Generally speaking, mass shooters are rarely motivated by a political agenda. They rarely have a coherent political agenda. Brendan Tarrant didn't have a coherent political agenda. Uh, this guy, Patrick, Patrick Gen Peyton Gendron, he didn't have a coherent political agenda. He was all over the map from left to right. right mass shootings tend to be perpetrated by young men who are socially isolated, right? They, they experience something, a trauma or a conflict that sends them reeling emotionally, and then they have easy access to guns. But their motivations are almost always, without exception, non-political, right? Now, some will channel their rage at a specific group of people, but they're virtually never acting on any kind of Republican or Democratic, conservative or liberal mission, right? Very few mass shooters are motivated by any sort of political agenda, right? They might be anti-gay, they might be anti-black, they might be anti-white, they might be anti-Christian, and you can call those political, but they're certainly not partisan. So usually these beliefs, to the extent they have any coherence, come out of personal vendettas. They don't usually come out of political propaganda. So most school shooters are children who wouldn't know a conservative from a communist. So the whole idea of associating politics with these mass murderers is absolutely absurd. It has nothing to do with it. There's absolutely no evidence to show that m mass killings are motivated by political ideologies of any type. All the mass killings we have seen have been motivated by some kind of lethal combination of a small subgroup of mental illnesses combined with easy accessibility to weapons of mass killing during peak symptoms of these illnesses. But uh, Richard thinks that only he can say this. It, it almost sounds like a threat, but I do think it carries some weight. I mean, these these serious issues need to be articulated, and just suppressing like rational discourse it does lead these people to conclude that like, well, nothing can be done. You know, the alt right failed, and. Trump just lost the midterms to boot. And so, you know, to hell with it, I'm just going to go murder a bunch of Jews in order to make my case. And, you know, I mean, you can, I, I don't know. I, I think my, my argument kind of had carried some weight. Now, I, I, I have a different perspective on it now as, as time goes on. Um, I, I obviously do agree that we need to, you know, put these things into the public square. I might even go a little bit further at this point and say that the, you know, we recognize that we're going against the grain in a very hard way. I mean, we are dissidents on some basic level. And maybe the movement 
at this point in time needs to be a little esoteric as it were that just you know the people are not quite ready for this and we we need to so great news guys richard is ready to save us you just have to join him at, at a higher level of readiness right the, the fault's with you all right richard is here the, the teacher is ready he just needs the student to appear kind of, and I, I do agree with this to the at the very least we, we need to do a lot more just intellectual work to make sure that we're getting it right and that you know we, we really have something to say because when you push a lot of this stuff into the public square as i was saying with ed it, it almost it, it almost gets to the point where like shooting blacks randomly is almost like a rational thing to do and and obviously i hope no one clips that last sentence i just said because it, it needs to be put in context i obviously don't think it is but if you're in if the entire if the movement is solely based on just like pure numbers and these occupiers have come here none of them are innocent in the words of um you know the, the buffalo shooter and it's just about they're they're occupying our land it's like russian tanks in ukraine or something just kill them you know it's a numbers game the, I, you know uh this buffalo shooter what did he kill 10 or a dozen or you know it's like oh the score now is i'm in jail and 10 blacks and maybe some whites are dead they must they were probably liberals you know we we won this round i mean that kind of horrible logic starts to to, to enter the realm when the entire argument is just basically just like pure numbers just a numbers game that's it and so i i do think that maybe the movement needs to be a bit esoteric and we, we kind of have to recognize that we're on the margins and that we're dissident and we need to kind of pursue what we're doing in a certain way i i tend to agree with that i'm, I'm kind of thinking out loud here but i tend to agree with that um you know after saying it uh, but but also it's like the worst aspect of our movement can be taken okay let's uh let's see how how the left is dealing with uh setbacks in the whole roe v wade uh, potential ruling coming out from the supreme Court. centuries of tradition and law by leaking sam alito's draft opinion in which he argued for overturning roe v wade abortion enthusiasts have harassed supreme court justices and their families at home They've attacked police officers in L.A. They firebombed a pro-life group in Wisconsin. On Sunday, Planned Parenthood held a, quote, pro-abortion protest at the Arizona State Capitol. Remember safe, legal, and rare? No, not anymore. They're just for it now, and they're saying it. The journalist Drew Hernandez attended that protest and shot some pretty shocking footage of the people who were there. Here's a sample. Keep your lies out of my Keep your lies out of my Your mom stuck a coat hanger up her hooey and tried to get rid of you, but she failed. You don't have to be a religious person to see that there's a spiritual component to all of this. Alison Senofante is a pro-life advocate. She joins us. And Alison, thanks so much for coming on. 
Um, so this doesn't it seem like we've left the realm of a political debate or even a debate over rights and moved into another realm entirely. Yeah, what you just played is so hard to watch, right, Tucker, because it's human beings treating human beings the worst. Um, but yeah. yet, time and time again, pro-life individuals go out, they try and make the case for life. They are willing to take this verbal beating, this verbal harassment, because... You know, someone who suffers more than that pro-life individual out on the streets is the preborn child. That is what we're fighting for in the pro-life movement. Uh, every single child lost to abortion is violated. They are dismembered and poisoned and starved of nutrition. And so that's why these pro-lifers keep going out, trying to make the case, keep trying to have the debate. That, that anger, that vitriol is not going to change anyone's heart or mind. But yet, we on the pro-life movement are still showing up. We're trying to serve them. Education, I mean, listen, some of the things that were just said, they're not, they're not even medically accurate. I mean, these people need a lesson in science, in prenatal development, embryology. It, they're just completely wrong. And I really feel for a lot of these young women because they've been lied to, Tucker. They've been lied to by big media, big abortion, Planned Parenthood, who tell them these things that are lies. And so I'm really glad you're covering this, and I'm really grateful for a diverse pro-life movement. Okay, so maybe uh, Richard Spencer will save us from all this madness. You know, by very mainstream, mainstream people, whether it's like Tucker Carlson or whether it's 4chan, where you find this all over the place. And it can be just kind of dumbed down or perverted or just said in such blunt terms that it, it just, yeah, it just becomes this kind of terrible numbers game, you know, very similar to like um, some of the BLM stuff where you had mentally ill crazed blacks and they were like, well, all cops are bastards. Oh, well, okay, then I'm just going to go shoot a cop, you know, fuck it. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't have a like direct solution to this, but I just think we need to be talking about this. And it's like, is, is, the, is our movement, like, is the world ready for what we're saying. I mean, I think we should at least ask that question and stop thinking in terms of like. I don't know. Are you are you ready for what you're saying? You you said that your hail gate almost destroyed you. I mean, is is the movement that you created attracting high quality people, or or is there is there a problem internally, or are all the problems just external to you and the movement? The normies are becoming radicalized. Or like the normies are coming around, or whatever. Well, yeah, they are. They might be coming around in a really horrible way. And in a really perverse way, we need to pay attention to that. Um, and then the uh, normies are not coming around in a perverse way and going out and slaughtering people, right? These mass murder events are exceedingly rare. They make up a very tiny proportion of murders in the United States. Other thing is that you know I've, I've talked a little bit about this before. I mean, the, the potential for bad faith actors to manipulate forums or social networks like Facebook or 4chan or whatever is clear. I don't think that the people did not evolve to be gullible. All right. People are not as easily manipulated to do things that they don't want to do. Right. You don't have bad actors out there propagandizing people through a few thousand dollars worth of Facebook ads or through making some posts on 4chan. Right. We evolved in a way to be highly suspicious of what other people tell us because that's in our best interest. We also evolved in a way that we tend to have disproportionate certainty over our own opinions. Right, because there are evolutionary benefits to going through life with a ton of confidence. But we can kind of straighten out some of the, the stupid things that we believe when we think socially, like I'm doing right now. I'm, I'm talking to you. You're talking to me back in the chat. I have guests who come on. When I say something, I can be held accountable for it. I, I learn from the experience. I think 
much more clearly when I think socially rather than just try to think on my own. Kremlin or Putin invented QAnon or anything like that, but did it in this kind of indirect way support Russia? Yes. Was it kind of similar to the Red Army faction in some weird way? Yes. It was, it was demoralizing, created extreme chaos and terror among the population. I mean, I don't doubt that on some level, there's some Russian troll farm that's pushing something like Q or, or, or did push it. Um, and then just to- QAnon did not depend on some Russian troll farm, right? Conspiracy theories meet certain needs in people who are losers at life, right? Everyone wants to feel special. Everyone wants to feel important. Now, me, I've evolved so much spiritually that I'm happy to wear a, a dark shirt against a dark background and just simply fade away and simply allow the power of my ideas to either win the day or lose the day because it's not about me. You know, I'm just like a selfless servant of the light. Add on to that the issue of like, you know, um, we agree, you know, free speech is <laughs> at least our notion of it, free speech is like political speech. Like you are allowed to disagree with people. And I obviously, I support that. You know, everyone supports that. It's kind of easy. But free speech isn't like pornography. You know, we've had laws and regulations of pornography. I think we should have more regulations of pornography. Um, and like, I don't know. I mean, the 13-year-old... The, the, the Look, there's no strong correlation between the amount of pornography that's allowed in a society and the amount of heinous things that could be possibly linked to pornography, such as violence and rape. Right? Japan has abundant access to pornography, to video games, to TV, to cable TV, all right, to all, all the things that are supposed to turn people into you know, psycho murder machines, and Japan has infinitesimal rates of violence. So I, I don't doubt that TV and video games and, and pornography can warp and disturb a mind that is already leaning in that direction. But pornography and video games and 4chan and anonymity on the internet is not the major source of our murder problems, right? America's murder problems are replicated around the world when you look at the demographics of who's committing the murders. So America's racial problems are not American. They're replicated all around the world when you have the same sort of components that America has. So Swedes who come to America are not committing high rates of crime. Japanese and Chinese who come to America are not creating you know, high rates of, of murder. All right? The same people who commit a lot of murders uh, in England or in Australia or in Africa or in Central or South America are also committing a high rate of murders in the United States. So there's nothing really unique about America's racial problem. It simply replicates what's going on around the world. We just have different demographics than most other first world industrialized nations. Year old girl who kills herself because she doesn't measure up to some Instagram model with big tits who's, you know, taking a amazing photographs in her vacation in Cancun and, you know, whatever. And this girl feels that she's totally inadequate and just offs herself at a very, you know, vulnerable time in her life. I mean, this is... If a girl offs herself because she's on Instagram during a vulnerable period of her life and sees women more beautiful than her, that has almost nothing to do with Instagram. That's almost everything to do with that girl and her lack of connection, right? If she was happily connected to family and friends and community, if she had some kind of transcendent purpose in life, if she was connected to some sort of volunteering where she was playing an essential role in the lives of others, she wouldn't be out there offing herself. So it's so easy to blame Instagram or Twitch or 4chan when disconnected people do crazy things. This is a really bad thing. And this is something that's new to the world. It's serious. 
it's just even if even if a girl doesn't commit suicide it, it is pretty toxic like the, the you know teenagers have enough problems but like getting depressed over some stupid bitch on Instagram. plenty of people read 4chan every day and it has no discernible negative effect on them that millions and millions of people use facebook and twitter and instagram every day it has no discernible ill effect right so uh, maybe 2% of the population, 5% of the population uses social media and it has some kind of ill effect. Yeah, it has an ill effect on people who are mentally unstable, people who lack that real-life connection, so they are trying to fill a hole in their soul with virtual connection. And there are forms of virtual connection that are elevating and virtuous and, and make you wiser and kinder. I mean, it's good to have a life that's, that's filled with love. I mean, love changes your brain. I mean, even love of baseball, right? There's this great new book out called Wired for Love, a neuroscientist's journey through romance, loss, and the essence of human connection. So she met a guy when she was 37 and uh, they got married. He was a fellow scientist and then he died of cancer in, in 2018. And so she, she felt the euphoria that comes from falling in love. She got the, the rush of dopamine. She, she got the adrenaline, right? There are a lot of wonderful things about uh, falling in love. And love's important, right? Love should not be forgotten. Kamala Harris, because why wouldn't you? It's just too easy. Even old boyfriend Willie Brown doesn't like Kamala Harris anymore. But Kamala Harris, one thing you can say for her is she is underrated as a philosophical voice. She could literally do a page-a-day calendar, a kind of kill Hilgebron for our time. Remember, it was Kamala Harris who once pointed out, and we're quoting, it is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. In other words, today is the first day of the rest of your life. Children are our future. Now, we didn't think she could get better than that, but we underestimated her, as we so often have. Here she is, Kamala Harris, our page-a-day calendar vice president, speaking to the State Department, telling us about the importance of working together. Our world is increasingly more interconnected and interdependent. That is especially true when it comes to the climate crisis, which is why we will work together and continue to work together to address these issues, to tackle these challenges, and to work together as we continue to work operating from the new norms, rules, and agreements that we will convene to work together on to galvanize global action. <laughs> so if you were to take a truckload of cliches and put them in a blender, that's what you'd get. Congratulations, Kamala Harris. We'll see you tomorrow. Have the best night with the ones you love. Yeah. Love, loves where it's at. So a terrific book uh, out by a neuroscientist. And it's written up in, in the New York Times. What happens when you fall in love? All right. It feels really good. Our brain releases feel-good neurotransmitters that boost our mood. We have, you know, biological fireworks going off. Our heart rate is elevated, right? You get euphoric. You get that rush of dopamine. You blush, which is a sign of adrenaline. We, we become closer. We get closer physically, spiritually. We start imitating each other. We're activating our mirror neurons, the network of brain cells that are activated when you move or feel something or when you see another person moving. Right? All sorts of great things happen when you fall in love. When you form strong connections, right? our whole system becomes boosted. Right? Our heart rate gets elevated. We get the love hormone. Oxytocin starts rising. It makes us feel connected. 
right? Our, our hormones and neurotransmitters like norepinephrine are spiking. We lose track of time. Our levels of adrenaline rise, which expands the capillaries in our cheeks. That's what makes us flush. Our levels of serotonin, which is a key hormone regulating appetite and intrusive anxious thoughts, starts going down. When we're in love, we start eating irregularly. We fixate on small details. We worry about sending the perfect text, saying the perfect words. Then we start to calm down, right? We start to feel content, right? We, we have more complex cognitive functions that, that take off, such as pain suppression. We have more compassion. We have better memory. We have greater creativity when we fall in love. So love is a superpower that makes the brain thrive. It's necessary for survival, like water, exercise, or food. A healthy love life, having a close circle of friends, right, absolutely is essential to your, your health as a good diet. So love is the opposite of loneliness, right? And loneliness is what characterizes these mass shooters. It's what characterizes you know, most antisocial behavior, right? Uh, loneliness is accompanied by a cascade of physical and mental disabilities from depression to high blood pressure to diabetes to sleep fragmentation. So if you don't feel like you're in meaningful relationships, you are thirsty. You're socially thirsty. So your brain is sending you signals to tell you that you need to help your social body. So these alarms get activated when people are literally thirsty and when you're just feeling socially disconnected from others. And these feelings are here to help us to survive. So there's a paradox in loneliness. We want to approach others, but the lonely mind has been lonely for so long that it detects more threats, often inaccurately, and that makes you want to withdraw rather than approach others. And love doesn't have to be with a living person. It can be with a fantastic, charismatic live streamer. If you're really in love with life, with your passions, with your hobbies, all right, that can be a tremendous buffer against loneliness. When I'm thinking about books I'm reading, if I'm thinking about ideas, if I'm uh, thinking about music, all right, if I'm thinking about my, my friends, if I'm thinking about family, all right, that fills me with passion and I'm not lonely when I'm filled with passion. And you can also stay connected with other people even if you're not physically in the same vicinity. If you simply close your eyes, think about someone you love. Think about when you made them laugh out loud, right? Think about the kindness that other people have done for you. Like we can store these positive memories in our mind we can access them anytime. We have the remote control. We can choose to flip on a channel in our brain that's all about love and, and forgiveness, that's about connection and gratitude, right? It's a much healthier place to live. Stick around with me. You know, give me a break. You know, there just has to be something. We, we have to at least, you know, talk about this of like how we regulate the internet. And like 4chan just strikes me as just, extremely fucking toxic and like it's filled with snuff videos yeah there, there's a lot that is toxic on 4chan there's also a lot of great stuff on 4chan it's a mixed bag i don't find it good for me so i don't spend much time there but it's a mixed bag it's not like simply a den of evil and, and I, when i say 4chan i i mean that as kind of a catch-all term you know hn a coon whatever um and other ones in asia that i don't know the names of um, it just strikes me as extremely toxic. It's filled with, you know, snuff videos, child porn, weird anime shit, like, and then all of its contributions to discourse, you can actually find elsewhere. It's not like some new, like powerful idea emerged on 4chan. Like what emerges on 4chan are just kind of like dumbed down meme versions of stuff that you can really find elsewhere. And so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I, I, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm just bored with the argument of 
and I, because I think it's illegitimate and I'm bored of just saying like, we want free speech. Well, of course I want free speech. You know, like I want to participate in discourse. I guess you guys do as well. And you're in, in maybe a different way than I do. Uh, that, that's a telling moment. Like Richard finds support for free speech boring because he always wants to be new and shocking and innovative and surprising and compelling. And in his desire to be new and exciting and compelling and to blow your mind with his hot takes, he just gets bored with good old-fashioned free speech, common sense, a lot of things that are good in life and not exciting. In fact, for most people, you want to live just a few notches above boring, right? You don't want to be out there pursuing excitement. Or maybe not. Um, but, you know, like you do have to take responsibility for your words and you do have to make distinctions between someone who is trying to contribute to discourse and just some, you know, toxic, you know, what, what did Obi-Wan Kenobi say about Moss Eisley? There's never been a worse den of vipers or something like this. So Richard had uh, Mark Brahman uh, on his show yesterday. So Mark starts going off. You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know, though. I mean, it's, it's hard to say exactly. I mean, we, don't, we obviously don't know ultimately what's in the heart of all these people. But I think that they, I think that they are reactive and emotional. So they are reactionaries. Uh, guys like um, Tucker Carlson, I think he's basically a reactionary. You know what I mean? I think the same was true of Trump, but he was a reactionary. Uh, and I don't think that so there, there is an, it's a kind of emotional response to irritations, uh, you know, present in the society. Um, but it's not an intellectual response or a, there's in, in, therefore it, it doesn't sustain, right? So in other words, it doesn't, uh, because it's emotional and it's reactive, it's inconsistent and it doesn't sustain, right? And there's no plan. They don't have a plan. They're just kind of like lashing out in, in a kind of like, in a semi-mindless manner. I mean, okay. This is Mark Brabham's critique of the distant right saying the distant right. The problem with the distant right is it doesn't have a plan. They're not mindless themselves. Obviously a lot of them are very intelligent, but their, their politics is a kind of emo emotive you know, reactive politics um, that's lacking a plan or a kind of direction or vision or structure. Well, populism is inherently reactive. Okay, populism is about virtue resides with the people. It's not really an ideology. It's entirely situational. It, it never lasts, all right? Populism is always a fleeting movement, right? You don't have populists with, with long careers. You don't have populist institutions. Populist, populism is an intermittent phenomena where the people feel a sense of commonality and they unite and rebel against the reigning elites. Sure, you know what I mean? Um, and that makes it distinct, of course, from the left or you know, from uh, elements of the left. And it certainly makes it distinct from uh, Jews who do have a plan, you know what I mean? Wow, Jews do have a plan, did you know that? I mean, I converted to Judaism uh, 30 years ago. I didn't realize we have a plan. I mean, Jews have almost nothing in common with each other except for we have concerns about people who hate Jews. Aside from that, Jews have virtually nothing in common with each other. Like Orthodox Jews and Reformed Jews have virtually nothing in common. Uh, Orthodox Jews and, and you know, left-wing secular Jews have almost nothing in common. Orthodox Jews and uh, members of the conservative Judaism denomination have almost nothing in common. So this idea that Jews have a plan, right? Jews have a plan as much as Australians have a plan and Japanese have a plan and Anglicans have a plan. Did you know Anglicans have a plan, guys? And maybe the distant right should be more like the Anglicans because, you know, the Anglicans really have that ultimate plan. Uh, and but, so I think that that's, that's what we're seeing a lot in right-wing politics is not like, and, and again, it's easy to say that they're grifting and on some level they are grifting, but I think it, it is, it's on some level, it's also a kind of unconscious grifting, right? In other words, that like, uh, you know, Charlie Kirk is really Charlie Kirk on some level. Like, you know what I mean? 
and he's not like of course he's being cautious in some cases and that sort of thing and um where you know no one is uh being completely direct 100 percent of the time right but i think that um that basically what you see on the right to a certain extent is what you get in that they're you know i mean it's not they don't have a plan uh they're reactionaries uh it's an emotive response and that in in contrast to um the leading element of the left which would be jews and you know judaism which is intelligent and does come from the logos and does have a plan um, yeah, the, the leading element of the left, except for when it's not a leading element on the left, right? Jews have a, a disproportionate role in many ideological endeavors because they tend to have high average IQs. But uh, Jews don't have any more disproportionate role uh, on the left than they have in, in physics, in chess, right? Half of the, the major chess champions have been Jewish because chess is a very high IQ occupation. So Americans with IQs above genius level, above 145, about a third of them are somewhere between a third and a half of them are Ashkenazi Jews, right? So you would expect that they would have a disproportionate role in intellectual endeavors, whether these endeavors are on the left or on the right. Now, historically, the left has been much more friendly to Jews than the right, right? The, the right has traditionally stood for blood and soil and fear of outsiders and those who are different. So Jews have in the past 200 years, not generally been as accepted and welcomed on the right as they have been on the left. Um, you know, they're, they're obviously going to lose that battle. But it also, again, it also, I think it explains a sort of inconsistency of their rhetoric, right? So in other words, uh, Tucker is like reacting to like immigration and shit like that in uh, uh, demographics. But that's not like, you know, if that really, because I mean, obviously, I mean, in, in, you know, Richard has um, articulated, you know, views about this, but I think that ultimately, you know, everyone here agrees that, um, uh, demographics is destiny but it's not it's not the whole picture in the sense that you need a kind of you need a direction or you need a logos you need it's, something. it's like um build a wall deport them all but why why do you want to deport them all yeah, yeah. Everyone, everyone that. you need a kind of vision for society right. and but and i think that um and i think that but if tucker carlson really had a vision for society then he wouldn't be just kind of reacting to the news cycle in this sort of like archie bunker type way like the guy would be he would be moving in a more kind of coherent way and in a more consistent way uh, Tucker has about as much of a vision as you can expect from a TV host. He's written a couple of pretty good books. He uh, puts out uh, some thoughtful and some ridiculous uh, shows. Uh, the man has a def definite ethos and ideology. He wants a more coherent society with less immigration and less free trade and more respect for traditional ways of human organization. So I think this critique is unfair. And, you know, and probably, you know, uh, and, and probably he would, I mean, and he would also be more explicit, but I mean, I think he's being as, I, honestly, I think he's being as, I think that he is what you get. Like, I don't think that there's a, there's a, another Tucker Carlson behind Tucker Carlson. I mean, you know, maybe he's more radical, but I, you know, I don't think he's, I, I don't think he, I think he ultimately does see kind of a Sivnat, like Republican. It does not speak well of Richard Spencer that he's close with Mark Brahman. I mean, Mark Brahman just doesn't have any useful insights and has a ton of stupid and bad insights as the solution and that we just got to get people on board with the program we just got to get people signed up with the program it's like that shit that dude that's not gonna work you know what i mean things mm -hmm. society's already done you know what i mean you gotta, we have to start thinking about the next thing you know what i mean and um so that's my reading of the situation you know and, and, and most of the left also is earnest of course as well but i think that um the element that has a vision to their credit and has a plan is, is uh, the Jewish element, ultimately, that they are thinking, you know, generationally, they're thinking into the future and they, they realize that this civilization is not going to be around forever. Right. Um, and uh, so they're thinking about what's next. And we have to kind of uh, be thinking along those terms as well.
Anglicans think about what's next, right? Muslims think about what's next. Buddhists, uh, Baha'i think about what's next. Uh, secular people and atheists think about what's next. It's not some uniquely Jewish phenomenon. More, you know, interge intergenerational way, right? Yes. Would it be fair to say that vision is the most sought after superpower? I mean, isn't the whole story of Dune about vision? Yes. Hmm. We need to get and who has that? from Dune. What type of personality has vision? Lacks yeah. a vision. It lacks a guiding vision. And um, yeah, isn't the whole story of Dune? I mean, that's where we should get, you know, our transcendence from movies like Dune. So they are also reactionary. And that was certainly true of uh, Fuentes, right? Uh, Who is that just speaking? These are various callers from Richard Spencer's uh, Substack. They, if you join Richard Spencer's Substack, he has twice weekly calls where you can ask him questions. So it's, it's a problem generally, but I think it's, um, it's less of a problem in the more dissident circles. Um, but or in some cases they have a vision, but it's not really tenable vision or it's not a desirable vision, right? You know, so. I would say that a man with vision would not play 4D chess. He would play 3D. The problem with the alt-right is not a lack of vision. It's a lack of quality, right? The, the movement has overwhelmingly attracted really poor quality people. That's the fundamental problem. There's been vision galore. Everybody on the alt-right wants to be a visionist, to be a thought leader, to, to go on podcasts and to host live streams. Everybody on the alt-right ha has a vision for you. That's not a problem with the distant right. Continent-wide imperium. It, it is a really big idea, and it's true inequality. You know, it, it, the state is unquestionably an important idea. But that, it, the ethnostate kind of suffers perhaps from almost like a little too much vision. You know, it, it, it's similar to a communist who's like, well, once we establish true socialism, there will be no division of labor and thus there will be no true inequality. There'll be kind of a diversity of preference, but no real equality. You know, it's, it's so big, at least the way that I imagine it, which is a, you know, continent wide imperium. It, it is a really big idea and it's kind of something to shoot for. Um, I, I think what Mark is saying, you know, also envision and connecting with logos, or even what Brendan's saying is like, you know how to play chess. You're not playing some secret game in the fourth dimension. You're, you're playing actual chess and you know what to sacrifice and how to win. And um, I do think that, you know, I did throw the, I did put the ethnostate out there and I'm glad it's out there for discourse, but it was misunderstood to some degree. I think petty nationalists might've adopted it as an ethnostate, you know, for them. Um, but also it's, uh, it's, it's quite big. And what we actually need is like a logical, coherent way of thinking that will ultimately lead to that. And where we can properly analyze world events as either good or bad for that agenda. And so I, I think there, there does have to be a kind of logos. We can't, you know, I guess I, I, I'm rightly criticized when they're just like, well, Richard just wants the Roman Empire. Like, all right, what are you going to do? Like, just go declare yourself, you know, <laughs> dictator and, you know, create this out of your imagination. I mean, I think that's a kind of legit criticism. Um, something like the ethnostate can only arise when there is a logical coherence to our thought. Yeah. The ethnostate was misunderstood as a geographic territory instead of a mental headspace. But if you look yeah. at Vatican City, which is a sovereign state, population 500 something citizens, their, their influence goes outside their walls to every church in the world that's Catholic. So the ethnostate yes. is not really a place, it's in the mind. And the idea that you have to carve out some part of New England and live in the backwaters and abject poverty just to be sovereign and powerful is completely backwards to what an ethnostate would mean. Yes, we always get this of like, let's all move to Idaho. Don't you live in Idaho, Brendan? I'm in Boise, actually. Oh, oh you're in Boise. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I've never visited Boise. I, that might be an interesting... I heard Bo Boise is a really fun place. It is. The traffic prices, housing prices, everything's skyrocketing. Well, of course. Yeah. I'm just saying to go. Is it oh, yeah, it's beautiful <laughs> territory. Yeah. If you want to yeah. do outdoor stuff, you go here. Yeah. 
Um, but anyway, there, there's always this tendency among white nationalists of like, let's all move to Boise or let's all move to Montana. Let's go take over Iowa. You know, it, the Libertarians did this as well. I don't know if this project is um, going, going anywhere. I think they were moving to Iowa and the idea, or New Hampshire rather. So the idea was that all Libertarians around the country will move to New Hampshire and then they'll elect a Libertarian Republican in the primary and then just kind of change the game. You know, so it, they'll come out of nowhere and elect Ron Paul in New Hampshire, who'll win New Hampshire and be ahead in delegates, and then everyone will be reeling. I mean, it's a somewhat plausible premise. Uh, but anyway, I, I, I think the white nationalists, I mean, again, I'm not against people living near each other. I think actually we'd be really productive if, you know, Mark and I were next door neighbors or something. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, I, I do think it's, it's, it's the wrong way of thinking. As, as you were saying, like, the ethnic state is a state of mind as much as it is a, 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 an actual existing state. You can say the Vatican, the Soviet Union, at least in its heyday, I mean, it, it was materially less well off than this other superpowers, but like ideologically, just like invading people's hopes and dreams, basically, it was immensely powerful. Sure, or Marxism or Christianity, or right? So, yeah, but, yeah but then, exactly. The idea, though, is that it takes a, it takes a physical manifestation. So, uh, you know. So, what do uh, Richard and Mark Brahman really believe in? REM theory, Apolloism, just a, a watered down version, really, of. Before we discuss this perhaps exotic idea of Apolloism, some viewers might wonder, why not Christianity? Why isn't a return to Christian worship the answer to our civilization crisis? After all, if the West is to continue in any salubrious form, or indeed rejuvenate itself and attain even greater heights, should it not seek to return to the faith Europeans held for the last 1600 years? a faith that became familiar to them, that became, in many ways, integral to their very identity. Perhaps the first and most obvious question, is Christianity true? Most Christians take the miracles depicted in the New Testament as factual events that occurred, and moreover, that belief in the reality of miracles, especially the resurrection of Jesus, is requisite for being a Christian. Okay, most Christians don't think deeply about the reality of miracles, right? Christianity, like Judaism, like Islam, is primarily something you inherit from your parents, and it's what you grow grow up in, and it's just what's normal and natural. For most Christians, as for most Jews, as for most Muslims, their quote-unquote religion is primarily a social club and a way of signaling to other people that you're a good person. Right, So this idea that most Christians believe in the literal miracles is absurd. Most Christians are not thinking deeply about theological matters. They're not thinking deeply about miracles. Right, Most quote-unquote religious people are not thinking deeply about religion. It is a social club. Christian. In contrast, REM theorists understand the miracles described in the New Testament to be fictions, symbolic or parabolic in meaning, with no real plausibility a historical truth to them. For this reason, REM theorists consider Christ at best a semi-mythical figure, perhaps modeled on a historical figure. So is uh, Plato's allegory of the cave, is that just, you know, stupid and uh, backward and regressive because it didn't literally happen, right? There are all sorts of allegories and parables in history which contain, you know, profound messages. So whether or not, you know, this particular event described in this or that sacred text 
that literally happened just as the text described is not terribly important for how people tend to lead their lives, right? If you can get some kind of valuable lesson or inspiration, then, then that's wonderful, right? It doesn't have to be literally true. But still, people don't lead their lives on, on metaphysics, right? And I'm looking at a comment here I got from Philip DeRees. Luke confuses mere descriptive propositions. People tend to love their children, their friends, their in-groups. With normative ones, people ought to love their children, their friends, their in-groups. Well, guess what? Normative prescriptions that are not backed up by social sanctions don't have any power or influence, right? Uh, metaphysics is not accompanied by behavioral changes, generally speaking, right? You may find an individual here, an individual there, who can go off with a whole new brand of, of metaphysics and uh, change his behavior, but you can't get a lot of people doing that. People behave as the people around them reward them for behaving. So Philip says, from the mere fact that you can observe certain things about what people tend to do, people tend to love their children, they tend to love their friends, they tend to love their in-group, then not even those tendencies necessarily hold true universally, of course. Doesn't logically follow that they actually ought to do those things or that they have any rational justification for doing them. Yeah, we we developed over time, all right, the only way that we're still here is because we tend to naturally love our kids and to want to care for our kids. Believing that mere descriptions equate with normativity is otherwise known as the naturalistic fallacy. I don't talk much about normativity. I don't talk about what we ought to do. I talk about how we do behave. It is precisely for this reason that metaphysics is essential to any talk of love, morality, meaning, or purpose. Metaphysics is an intellectual form of masturbation. It doesn't make any real-world difference, except to the extent that pursuing a particular type of metaphysics may, may lead you to uh, associate with a particular community, right? So if you're one of those rare birds who's really into metaphysics, right, you will want to go hang out with other people who believe in your metaphysics, then their rewards and punishments will shape your behavior. So Philip says, because one's metaphysical beliefs and values or lack thereof determine how one can or cannot establish normative justifications for the things one ought to do. Yeah, none of that matters in the real world. I understand it's compelling you know, intellectual masturbation. I get it. Hence, this makes all the difference in the world, right? This makes all the difference in the world between a person who affirms metaphysics and another who scoffs at it, between religious worldviews and cultural systems and secular ones. Well, show me the difference. Where's the evidence? There isn't any evidence, right? Religious people don't, there's no clear moral distinction between the behavior of religious people and secular people and atheist people, right? There's no difference. The one difference that you can discern is that religious people tend to have in-group identities and tend to treat their in-group better than the average person treats the average person. But as far as outgroups, religious people don't treat outgroups any better, any differently than non-religious people. Philip says, this doesn't even touch on the fact that one must also in the first place define what love even means in terms of its contents and substance. Is love an emotion? Is it an action? Is it an attitude? Guess what? It's all of those. Making those determination yet again inescapably involves metaphysics. Yeah, if you like to masturbate, you can... You can examine the metaphysics of love. But if you want to deal in reality, you may want to check out 
This new book, Wired for Love, Neuroscientist's Journey Through Romance Loss and the Essence of Human Connection. So that the body is formed from the mind. So, you know, yeah. not immediately, obviously. Um, but, I, you know, I think that that is one of the, that, that's one of the, um, you know, the, the DR, the alt-right is largely a kind of populist movement, um, at least in, in terms of its mentality. I mean, the difficulty there is it doesn't really, which I've said like numerous times, is it doesn't have access to the uh, populist. So it can't really be a, a populist movement lacking that access. It doesn't have yeah. like Trump's uh, soapbox. Um, but, um, you know, so I think that, um, but they, and they, and there is this kind of, because of that sort of populist mentality, um, and really, I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of it is they're stuck on ideas um, or just sort of uh, uh, models of the early 20th century, um, we could say. They're sort of stuck on some of these models. Uh, their imagination is sort of stuck on some of these models. And I think that the, um, you know, the hope is that there'll be some demagogue that will emerge and he'll have access, you know, whether through his abilities or through, um, you know, wealth or, you know, uh, wealthy people conspiring. Um, he'll have access uh, to this podium and gain access to the, the populace as uh, Hitler did. Um, I, theoretically, that is a scenario. I mean, Trump was, you know, one, you know, people had this hope that he was something that he was not, right? And, and there also could be, uh, you know, people who are essentially like Trojan horses or that sort of Guess what? We all have hopes that someone else is something that we're not. We all have delusions about other people because we interpret them through our own perspective where we want to make sense of how they're acting. People act and, and speak in ways completely contradictory to our conceptions of other people. But it's too much bother to try to reconcile that or, or to face up to it. So we just decide in our mind, you know, Joe's a good person. Jack's a bad person. Jeff is a brave person. Karen is a coward. We all have these explanations for people that we know. And we tend to be quite impervious to the reality of how they, they act and how they, they really speak. People are far more complicated than we want to give them credit for. We usually... Uh, for most people in our lives, we only interact with them in certain situations, and we think that our interactions with someone, say, at the cash register or at church or at a you know, rotary club or at a strip club, that this is somehow representative of their totality. But no, people are situational, right? People change when you change the situation. So I am you know, far more complicated uh, than you know, the, the persona who does a YouTube live stream you're far more complicated than your persona at work or your persona at, at shul or your persona in your volunteer organization, right? So in some situations, uh, you would consider me brave. In lots of other situations, you would consider me cowardly. In some situations, you would consider me honest. In other considerations, situations, you'd, you'd consider me a liar, right? No one is universally a truth teller, a brave person, a, a good person right? Those people that you admire, there are all sorts of situations where you would despise how they act, right? There's no one who is immune to the power of situation. Everyone is incredibly vulnerable. Everyone has an incredible number of frailties. So everybody in our life, we have delusions about, and usually we have delusions in the direction of of consistency. We attribute far more consistency to ourselves and to other people than's really there. We're constantly reinterpreting the story of our life to make it consistent, right? If we act out in a way contrary to our values, we quickly justify it and then fit it into our life story so that we look heroic. Sort of thing. But, but the idea is a kind of populist model, you know, with a dictator and that sort of thing. Um, I think that um, and what they, they've really been against is this idea of like, you know, well, we're not going to do a kind of slow march through the institutions like the Jews did, for example, right? Now, 
<clears throat> I think that we have to accept that this is this is going to this is going to take. Jews then do a slow march through the institutions. Once Jews were allowed to go to university, they did a really fast march through the institutions. They exploded into the institutions. As soon as they were allowed into institutions, they poured into institutions and they dominated according to the degree that you would expect with their average levels of IQ and their levels of secular education. So there's no slow Jewish mask march through the institutions, just like right now, there's a considerable diminishment of Jewish power and influence in many institutions as other groups, such as Indian Americans, you know, Southeast Asians, uh, North, Northeast Asians are pouring into America's major institutions, such as Wall Street. Generations. And it's not that like, I mean, things could happen in the interim that are very fortuitous and very helpful to our cause. Political things could happen. A political oh. people could come to power. People that either that we know that we assist and help or people who are kind of outside of our sphere could come to power and be very beneficial to the things that we're trying to accomplish. But we have to think about this in terms of generations as a kind of eternal thing that goes on after we die effectively. And that, you know, so this idea of a slow march through the Jews were, Jews had the abidance and the, uh, you know, kind of sense of prophecy and they had a plan. So they were willing to kind of do this slow march through the institutions. So that is imitable in its way. Um, now, again, I, I mean, I think that there, so I think that we have to be prepared. Jews had a plan for a slow march through institutions. No, Jews are comprised of individuals and there are Orthodox Jews who often have fairly traditional values and there are secular Jews who often have fairly radical values. But usually Jews, like non-Jews, like to eat, like to make families, like to spend time with friends and pursue their interests. And everybody is reaching for power. Everybody wants more and more power, more and more resources, more and more things that give them pleasure, right? We all angle towards a feeling of importance, like plants angle towards the sun. So there was no uh, secret, you know, slow, steady march through the institutions plan, plan among Jews. When Jews were allowed to go to university, they poured into university. When they were allowed to take civil service jobs, they poured into the civil service. When they were allowed to become leaders in the military, they became leaders in the military and they rose to the level of their talents. We don't associate Jewish doctors, Jewish lawyers, Jewish accountants with incompetence. Like Whatever you say about Jews, you don't genuinely expect that they'll be less competent on average than their non-Jewish peers. So there's no master plan for some slow march through institutions. Both for um, you know, responding to opportunities that present themselves in the world and you know, being active in the world in the ways that we can be, you know, culturally, political and so, politically and so forth, but also to be thinking of, yeah, thinking of this in terms of generations, right? So uh -huh. it is kind of a slow march. Like we should be looking at a slow march, not necessarily through, you know, existing institutions because existing institutions um, may not last that much longer in a lot of cases, right? Um, but just a slow march in general. And, but a slow march does not preclude uh, being active and dynamic simultaneously. Like, you know, two things, uh, well, the right hand is doing one thing, the left hand can be doing another thing, I think. Yeah, I mean, we are moving consistently. Okay, many blather, people, blather, blather. Um, in Maybe. a way that we're not Come on. online DR type who is not even necessarily affiliated with any TRS. I mean, I think there, there are um, looking to perform different functions um, and because I think that, you know, I think that there are some healthy instincts, even, even though I would disagree with, you know, some of the ways in which they go about things, but guys like TRS, I mean, I think there, there are definitely healthy instincts there. Now, some of the people might be not the best or whatever, and I may have my criticisms, but I'm talking more about the kind of general, like sort of online DR type who is not even necessarily affiliated with any group. You know what I mean? It's, it's a, it's a, it's a mixed bag to say the least. My strategy would be to force people to sort themselves into groups, make them pick a side and identify themselves. And then the ones who, who do want to go out there with their identity get to be in charge, but the all well, rights and rights. Right I mean, 
we're trying to do that to a certain extent. You know what I mean? To, um, uh, rich yeah, life forces you into groups, all right? Group strategies generally work much better than individualist strategies, right? A good, happy, effective life normally means living within community as opposed to just being a loner. Richard and I are trying to do that. We're trying to get people to, you know, uh, pick a side. You know what I mean? And, but I, not I think the, the Christianity question, it, that really drives a wedge. In a yeah. good one. In a good one. Yeah, I mean, and a necessary. Yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's because look, and, it, and it's kind of, it, it's a little bit, it's a little bit separate from uh, the politics, though. I think that we understand religion is, is essentially ultimately kind of also a political formation as, as well as spiritual. Um, and, you know, and, because, and I think that that's also the way the Jews view it, um, that it is ultimately, uh, you know, politico uh, religious or religio political. Um, but I think that um, it is an important question. Jews are about the most secular people in America. Right, you go to a hospice. I think they make this point later in the show. You'll find a smaller percentage of Jews talking about the afterlife and the comforts of heaven and the comforts of being with God compared to non-Jews. I think that that's entirely conceivable. Uh, political Christian groups or something that could serve some useful purpose for us, um, and are not necessarily um, our adversaries politically. But I think that intellectually, we have to kind of um, make enemies in this regard and just demarcate a zone, you know, kind of psychologically healthy zone for us. You know what I mean? Um, and and draw people into that zone because i think it, you know and again i think i talk about the idea of be, even being crypto apollonian so theoretically yeah see mark Brahman and, and richard spencer think that the path forward for their movement is to be anti-christian so to come out you know very clearly against christianity so even though most of their supporters and potential supporters are christian they think that the path forward is to be anti-christian make people you know get woke on the christian question but inescapably based in part on earlier dying and rising gods. On the simple premise alone that the miracles depicted in the New Testament are fictitious, REM theorists argue Christianity must be understood as false according to its own criteria. The second and perhaps far more important question is whether Christianity... Did you know REM theorists hold this? REM theorists, there's just this whole body of REM theorists uh, there's like Mark Brahman and there's Richard Spencer, and, and that's about it. But REM theorists, man, they're on the, the cutting edge of societal evolution. Regardless of the historicity of its miracles, is of value to Western civilization. To be clear, this is a question separate from whether or not religion in general is of value. Indeed, REM theorists do believe religion <laughs> and theism of a particular type are necessary to cohere civilization to oh, a yeah. common purpose theorists. and to point it in a common eugenic direction rem theorists proponents rem theorists likely you could in this dawning period you could have someone who is nominally a christian but is really an apollonian uh, because the idea I, my idea of an apollonian is someone who is of a kind of leadership caste as it were right um so you could have a politician who is basically like agrees with apolloism um but he's, you know, running for office in Europe or in America. And, um, you know, it doesn't, you know, maybe especially in America, but it, maybe it makes sense for him to nominally be Christian in this instance or, or the other, or, and certainly not to offend Christians or say anything anti-Christian or anything like that. Um, that person still could be an Apollonian um, who is basically advancing our, our goals. But so this is Mark Brahman, Richard Spencer's buddy in Apollo, Apolloism. I think that the Richard and I are kind of condemned to basically be offensive to people because we're not... Um, we're not trying to like, you know, get like a big, you know, political herd of people to follow us. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to 
uh, reach that elite that that may uh, be interacting with that that sort of big Christian herd um, in a way that we're not. You know what I mean? Um, but so that they're kind of um, made sort of sound or healthy in their worldview and can kind of go about politics in a way um, that makes sense for the future. That's not it, it's not kind of clouded, um, you know, by these bad ideas. Effectively, you know what I mean? You so can create. Yeah, Apolloism. Um, this is this is the way the to side, push things um, forward. It's completely valid. Attract an elite in our direction, effectively, right? Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah. So I, I, I was just thinking. So I, I'm not against the idea of you know people going into academics and, and starting to develop or promote um, Apolloism, for example, even if in a kind of yeah, it's not a not against people going into the academy and and promoting Apolloism. Way at first, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm totally for that. And in fact, it seems like we already. I mean, we we've already um, made some friends in academia. Um, uh, through the Christ mythicist stuff. And I think, yeah, just a huge following in academia, guys. That would be a fruitful area for us in the future. Great. Uh, uh, so I, um, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I think, so yeah, my, my broader point was that, yeah, we have to be thinking long term. So, but I think that the DR is always like, well, let's get a politician in there and just like, you know, kick out the Jews and, and uh, just like, you know, hit the rewind back to the 1950s or whatever, well, you know, whatever the sort of stupid idea is. That right. The 1950s where there were no Jews in America. I, I mean, come on, man. Come on. The right is uh, thinking. Um, again, I mean, I, look, there, there could be political de developments that are very useful and positive for us, but we also have to be thinking long-term. And there's another reason for this. The other reason is that let, let's assume that there's a very favorable political development and yeah. basically our guys get into power. Well, what, how are our guys going to sort of develop the society or think about the society? Are they going to start to say, okay, well, uh, you know, let's make it a Christian society again, right? So Yeah, the, the template, temp in all likelihood, the templates would be the 1950s. So the alt-right is interesting in that virtually all its leaders are atheists and almost all its followers are christian there you go uh, yes yeah, yeah so i think um, you understand my point that we have to be developing again yeah. yeah we have to be developing intellectually and culturally just continuously right um uh, because they because whoever you know whether it's a gradual or it's a sudden process that that puts uh you know a party in power or a faction in power that's um on our side they need something to look at they need a kind of intellectual uh history they need a, a cultural history they need ideas to implement Right. I mean, it, literally, they could start building temples, but how are they going to even know what this shit means? I mean, so, I mean, you know, uh, Rome was uh, had declined to the point that when uh, Augustus um, uh, reinstituted the cult of Apollo, they were trying to figure out what these symbols were meaning then. You know what I'm saying? Right. Wow. Like they, yeah. Because so much had, had been lost culturally. Um, and so, you know, through decadence or decline um, that, uh, you know, so it's a similar problem in the sense that we have to have something that they can look at as a guide. Um, so that when they are in power, they don't just kind of revert to a position that allows them to lose power in a generation or two, right? It's really just three things that idealism, politics, religion, that's all you got to figure out. Yeah, that's it really. But they need, they need something. And, uh, you know, and I, I think that idealism, uh, politics and religion, that's all that you guys need to figure out. Like, idealism can be useful, just as likely to lead you off in a deranged direction. You'll never figure out politics. Politics is how people organize themselves, in particular, against some threat that wants to annihilate them. Right? And religion is being the primary source of comfort for people in, in around the world for millennia. We are living in the world's first secular societies. Right? Western Europe, in particular, is the world's first overwhelmingly secular society. And amusingly, in many ways, the United States is even more secular than Western Europe in that we're more atomized. We have a more efficient economic system. We have probably less 
less mystery and magic to, to our daily lives. We, we have fewer ties to particular people and particular territory. Most people in Europe live within eight miles of where their grandparents lived, where their parents, grandparents were born, right? Uh, there, are, there are national religions in Europe. So we're, we're living in, through something unprecedented, the, the world's first secular societies. And they're not falling apart, but they definitely have problems. People are in desperate need of comfort. And uh, the, the things that religion used to provide, people are trying to find in movies, in yoga, in music, in clubs. Um, I think that Germany was, uh, to use the, um, in many ways, unfortunate example of uh, Nazi Germany, I think that they, they were kind of moving towards, um, they were sort of thinking of de-Christianizing and they were moving um, toward a pagan idea of society. But some of their ideas were just not, were wrong, effectively, in, in my view. And Rosenberg was... Um, one of the yeah but yeah the nazis they were really moving in the right direction by moving against christianity and we can learn from that kind of chief cultural architects and you know really in a lot of cases for no fault of his own he just like he just got a, a couple of like important things wrong you know i mean one of the ideas um was that um you know jesus was really an Aryan, for example now i mean i, I assume that um you know that's that's an interesting question that's that's false obviously it's inaccurate um and it's also you know it's but in some cases people are thinking of ways of easing people off christianity so if there's a kind of transition there's a sort of transitional religion or something or transitional religious idea that you can go into to kind of wean people off christianity hitler was two-faced he presented himself to protestants as a christian he pandered to them as a christian and a true yeah, banner just wouldn't have to do that well politics is one thing you know i mean i don't you know um but it's you know but politics if you know if you, if you use the example of trump and and, you know, I, so well, I also think, appealing to Protestants also, he was doing the same thing and the upper middle class supported him just like they did Hitler. So it was a very similar, the liberals were right, actually. It was a similar dynamic. Yeah. I was just going to ask, was Hitler anti, uh, he was, was he anti-Christian ideologically, but like uh, appealing to it? I think, look, I think it, it's a kind of, it's an opaque, uh, like it's not entirely clear exactly what Hitler's views were, but the general impression or sense that you can get, and people differ on this question, um, is that, um, that he was, I mean, the guy gave like an unabridged, uh, you know, uh, the, the unabridged works of Nietzsche to, um, Mussolini, right? That's recorded in uh, Hitler's War um, by Irving. So, I mean, it seems like very likely the guy was, like, you know, he was he he basically assimilated Nietzsche's ideas on religion. Um, uh, and I mean, there's other there are there are other signs that kind of point to that. I mean, but um, but regardless, um, so it seems like the, the the general sentiment, and there were Christians among the um, National Socialists, so it, it was a mixed bag to a certain extent. And um, you know, toward the end of the war, some of the National Socialists would be viewing Christians as kind of deliberately undermining the effort uh, in some cases, right? Um, so. But I think that the general trend or tendency or the plan was to de-Christianize, but through a kind of, uh, through uh, these sort of pal palatable steps, uh, which might include presenting Jesus as like not really a Jew, but an Aryan, as was uh, Rosenberg's thesis. I mean, I, you know, I honestly find it hard to believe that he necessarily believed that, but he was a, um, but maybe he did believe it. And, um, and then, you know, and then he was also um, very much in favor of the Norse myth and understanding Norse myth as a kind of like, um, you know, essential and, and primary myth of the German people. And, um, you guys all know my views on Norse myth, but it's... Oh, actually, uh, if I may jump in, Mark, um, two days ago was Friday the 13th, and I did some research on that. Okay. Apparently, Friday the 13th is based on a dinner in Valhalla, where there are 12 gods dining. And a Loki came in, he was the 13th, and he killed uh, Balder, and they were all crying and sad. And it sounds like the Jesus is the Last Supper story, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of examples like that. I mean, there's... Uh, I've, I've included more in my book, but the, um, there's a Garden of Eden, right, which is... I where do you think uh, Christianity came from? Where do you think Judaism came from? Where do you think Islam came from? Where do you think the uh, the Mormon Church came from? Like, you think it just sprung out of the the ground? 
just fully formed without any antecedents? No. All religions built upon that which was current at the time or had gone before them. So the, what became Judaism took you know, some pagan rituals, some pagan practices, some pagan insights, and Judaized them. Like, like turn them into monotheistic perspectives and monotheistic practices and monotheistic stories. And Christianity came along and took many pagan practices and gave them a somewhat monotheistic spin and, and Christianized them. So all religions built on what comes before them. It, it doesn't inherently discredit them. Clearly a reference to the Garden of Eden and it has the golden apples. And uh, this, is, this is one of the things it brings upon Ragnarok is that um, the giants steal uh, the apples so that the... Uh, uh, the gods start aging, you know, they start dying because they no longer have this tree of life that they've been eating apples from. But um, <clears throat> in any case, uh, but so that's, you know, that's a kind of, that's a mistake that he makes, but it's also. Yeah, they made some mistakes, but they got it right in being anti-Christian. But part of that mistake, though, is that because, and one of the ideas, he like, he's an intelligent guy and, he, and, he, and he's like a kind of like, you know, passionate writer. Um, I, you know, I think he makes some, he did identify Apollo as an Aryan figure, which was good, but, <laughs> um, uh, and he, he does seem to kind of suggest that, um, Jews generally, um, he doesn't kind of like clarify, I guess, in the way the concept of uh, proto-Jews uh, proto does. I think that that, is, that sort of lends a lot of clarity to the, what's going on in the ancient world. But um, he does seem to be demarcating you know, Dionysus as a sort of phonic, ultimately kind of negative element, and Apollo is an Aryan element, um, which is distinct from Nietzsche, of course. Um, but the, uh, the Norse myth thing is an error. But the, the, kind of the, the interesting thing about the error, though, is that um, he, he, he develops this idea that all of German art basically has to be kind of a reference or referential or be, or be somehow bound to this Norse tradition. It can only be a kind of like a reiteration or maybe a kind of veiled reiteration. Right. You try to say that all of your art can, can only come from a certain you know, subset of myths. Right? You got to strangle your art. Right? Let the art be free, bro. Let the art bang. Uh, this sort of Norse legend. And um, it's a, but but you see the problem because and it's not just like it, it's a problem on a couple of different levels because let's let's assume um, I mean it would be better if he was talking obviously if he were talking about the Greco-Roman myth tradition um, it would be better but it's I th yeah we need more Greco-Roman man boy love I think it's because what he's des describing ultimately is what I would call God masking right in the sense that like let's say uh, the Germans won the war and they, there was an art movement and they they took this sort of Rosenbergian ideas and they were like yeah uh, how much time do you think he spends uh, fantasizing about oh man what what if uh, what if the the Germans won the war wouldn't that have been cool if only the the Germans <laughs> won the war so sad that the Germans didn't win World War Two that's not for everyone and uh, so that so again it's a kind of self selecting uh, class the Apollonian class is a self selecting class and it's a vetted class in the sense that yeah we could, we we will get people in here coming up with like really wacky shit and uh, we may have to kick out some of them if they half Galatians says look. Can I offload the burden of consciousness onto you? I've already finished with Kenneth Brown. Persist in their insanity. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, because we're trying to keep ourselves. Come on, guys. Have you even read Loki? We're, uh, you know, in some ways we're Orpheus having emerged from the underworld. We're trying to stay, we're trying to protect ourselves from the mayonnaise, the mad women that will tear us apart. You know what I mean? Um, I had a, uh, I had a friend who said he knew somebody who worked at a hospice. And they said that by far Jews are like the, have the least faith, the least spirituality. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's. I mean, they have the highest. Well, and that look. I mean, that's. And I, I honestly think that that should be something that we allow. We should allow there to be atheist Apollonians, right? I mean, there are atheist Jews. So should we should allow there to be atheist Apollonians?
Um, I'm not an atheist myself. I believe in God, but you know, what, what does exactly does that mean? What is my definition of God? Well, I believe that we're here for a purpose, and I believe that um, there is a kind of divine mind mind in the universe that's uh, that maybe in some ways is kind of directing our actions um, and wants us to do good and leave the world better than we um, encountered it. You know what I mean? I think that that's so. Uh, Mark, you almost sound like a monotheist. Yeah, yeah, he he does sound like a, a monotheist there. What's really going on, Mark? Apolloism. And obviously Richard's on the call. I invite him to, to clarify here. But Richard said that Apolloism ultimately shouldn't be something that is, in a sense, obsessed with race. You know, and this kind of relates to the broader DR, that the DR is kind of, in a way, you know, milks the subject of race dry. And in a way, we need to kind of look beyond it. Uh, obviously, Richard can clarify that if we'd like. But yeah, in, in what sense do we not want Apolloism to be obsessed with race? Just kind of throw it out there. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I can talk about this first. Um, yeah, I, I think what I would say is, is just... Uh, mere race. I don't want, and, and Mark doesn't want this either. I, I, I know that this is true. We don't want to create a religion or a, or a theology in, in a proper sense of the term, you know, like a logic. Yeah, just a, a mere mere race or mere anything. It just wouldn't be sufficiently uh, complex for such complex thinkers such as ourselves. We We would never want to be reduced to anything such as objective meaning of understanding religion and, and thinking about, about spiritual matters. We don't want to create something that's just like a mask on white nationalism. And we don't want to just say that like, well, we're really worshiping the white race or this is about, you know, immigration restriction and, but we're just kind of dressing it up with a bunch of gods or something. I, I think that would be first off, just transparent to our detractors, but I, I think it would also just be rather hokey and kind of not at all compelling to anyone. You have to just be a white nationalist and you want to kind of turn that into a religion. I, I just don't, I see that as just a total non-starter. And so, I mean, and here's something that, that I guess is a little more controversial. And Mark and I were actually speaking about this uh, two weekends ago. And it, it's, it's something that has to go on to be nuanced. But, I mean, we do understand Apollo as a, an emblem of our destiny or, or as a guardian of our broad, you know, larger people group and, and so on. We, we, we get that. But I do, we, we need to communicate to people of all races. And a question in the chat, Luke. Do you believe that erotic love between an adult female and an adolescent male as young as, say, 13 is categorically, without exception in all cases, inherently and irredeemably unwholesome? Uh, I believe that in, say, America today, it is unwholesome such a high percentage of the time that, you know, I, I'm fine with just uh, saying, yeah, this is this is a bad idea. Right? I, I'm not sure the, the young man is going to be traumatized for life. But I would just say that it's so overwhelmingly a bad idea that it verges on 100%. And so, again, I, cosmotheism, for instance, which was developed by William Pierce, did have, and others, it, it did have a philosophy to it. And, and maybe actually some, a lot of aspects of that philosophy might be uh, you know, tantalizing for us. But it just did strike anyone who looked at it as just kind of like a, you know, a mask on neo-Nazism. And... I, I really don't want us to do that. I, I think there there can, will, and should be a non-white person who resonates with Apolloism and maybe is an Apolloist to some degree. That's big. And I, I think that's actually very important that what we're saying is a theology, it is a logic of theos. It, it, is, it is a way of looking at the world and it isn't just a kind of exclusivist thing. I mean, one, I think I mentioned like the case of Norse paganism as well. I mean, that has a lot of problems. And I, and I think Mark has, to an amazing extent, kind of unmasked Norse paganism as a deeply derived from Christianity. Um, but 
beyond that, I, at least with the many existing Norse pagan groups, there are some egalitarian Norse pagan groups out there, but among many of them that we know and that we might even know someone who's a member of, it does seem to be like, this is, the, this is our religion. This is a religion for the white man or, or maybe even a religion for the Northern European. And I, you know, there, there can be some good things about that, but I, I don't, that is not what we're trying to do. We're not just trying to create a religion masquerade or, or, a, or basically white nationalism masquerading as a religion. Why are there so many blacks in the media? Because they're incredibly compelling personalities. I mean, they they do command attention. They they frequently have particular gifts with spontaneity. They tend to be you know, less repressed, you know, less boring uh, compared to whites and Asians. So there's there's a visceral uh, appeal. There's a force of personality there. It's not surprising to me that there are a disproportionate number of blacks in entertainment and, say, stand-up comedy. Um, it has to be compelling to all sorts of different people. And we're not just going, we're not doing this in order to have, oh, the, the bad thing about Christianity is that it speaks to everyone. So our religion only speaks to, you know, well-bred white men or something. That, that's not what we're doing here. Oh, that's pretty exciting, guys. Apolloism open to people of any race. So... I do think playing violent video games has a destabilizing effect on some people. I, I do think that you know, playing violent video games probably makes many kids more aggressive. And I think it probably has that same effect on Japanese kids as it does on American kids. And there's a study here that I'm looking at. So there's an argument that all our research on violent video games must be wrong because Japanese kids play a lot of violent video games and Japan has a low violence rate. But by gathering data from Japan, we can ask, is it the case that Japanese kids are totally unaffected by playing violent video games? And of course they aren't. They're affected the same way that American kids are. Well, it is a good argument, right? Noting that Japanese kids play a lot of violent video games and then don't go out and commit much violence is an important point, that the Japanese have access to all sorts of pornography and, and don't go out and commit a lot of rapes and crimes and murders. Uh, does indicate that uh, pornography or violent video games are not a major source of you know heinous crimes, but for some people on the margin, right? Can, can they be negatively affected by what they see and do online? Of course. So, video games don't create school shooters, but they create opportunities to be vigilant for enemies, to practice aggressive ways of responding to conflict, and to see aggression as acceptable. So when bumped in the hallway, children begin to see it as hostile, react more aggressively in response to it. Right, that's some academic experts here on violent video games. Looking at the comments section on Steve Saylor's site about the Buffalo shooting. So the shooter came from a rural township on the Pennsylvania border, home to a disturbing number of trailer parks and distribution centers, one of which is Amazon's. Why would anyone expect him to be sane? He grew up in a microcosm of modern America. He grew up in J.D. Vance land. Next comment. The worst thing you can do right now is to pick a fight on behalf of your team. This shooter will make it easier to disarm his own people like the mosque shooter in New Zealand. I tend to distrust people who claim to feel no hate. I think hate is a normal human emotion. It is a human thing to feel homicidal range. What is abnormal is to have no impulse control or to plan on actually wiping out people. If you're going to get into arguments, you've got to have a good autopilot. It's no use getting into trouble with HR. I've had plenty of situations with protected minorities at work. I've never been accused of saying anything racist, even though I am pretty damn racist. You can verbally escalate, 
but you can de-escalate a situation without using slurs. There are ways to avoid crossing the line that gets you fired or jail. Spend some time getting to know your opponent. Go figure out their soft spots. The, the logic I've seen coming from American neo-Nazis and white supremacists is that they're supreme because they're white, but then they follow that logic into believing that all whites are equal. They're supreme as a group, but inside the group, they're all equal. And they're all just mm -hmm. based, but they, they refuse to admit like the hierarchy on the inside. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I see that very Absolutely. strongly, and it's very contradictory. Yeah, and the, the the liberal argument of like pointing to some, you know, crazed white nationalist with tattoos and you know who's overweight and flailing around with a big swastika banner or something, and they're like, oh, so this is the master race, you know? Uh, I think that criticism has a lot of truth to it. Um, but so I, yeah, you can take this in directions. You can say that I'm cucking here or something, or you could take it in the direction that Brendan just mentioned, um, you know, or you can take it in the direction of you know, this, this way of thinking, really, it, it, it should be universal in the best sense of the word, in the sense that it can actually speak and even resonate with people all around the planet. It, it isn't just a mask for the DR or a mask for racism or anything like that. Um, it, although it obviously will have a lot to say about that issue, about race in general, and about us and so on. And of course it will, but um, it's, it, I, I don't... So, chat says... Body shirt perfectly matches the microphone, peak podcasting. I, I'm just dissolving into the background. Dark shirt, dark background. Let me just fade away. Right? I don't matter. I am achieving peak nothingness. I am simply a vessel for the light and for love. Right, back to Steve Saylor's comment section. Steve Saylor, another vessel for light and love. This shooter probably grew up dirt poor, being told that he had white privilege by groups like Ford Foundation and people like Mackenzie Bezos because he is white. The news immediately plays up the race angle, but they did no such thing with similar shooting in Boulder where a Syrian Muslim immigrant murdered 10 people, all of them white. So the shooter released a 180-page manifesto, roughly similar to the New Zealand guy's manifesto. Summary, great replacement fertility stuff. Number two, uh, fact, FAQ, frequently asked questions. It reads like a Reddit, ask me anything. Three, different uh, racial levels of IQ, complete with a bell curve distribution graph. Uh, for Michael Levin, like the list, list of uh, racial crime statistics, dissertation on black privilege, section on Jewish elites, Torah quotes, point seven, by crypto, Sophia, number eight, detailed outline with diagrams. Come on, come on, hold, hold it down, lady. I'm trying to, trying to run a show here. Oh, uh, yes, this is Gil Young. Please, please. Uh, back to the summary of the manifesto. Uh, so he cased the place and he knew the habits of the employees, the location of the guard, and all the exits. So the uh, Washington Post covered this. So apparently he visited visited the site a couple of months before the shooting. And uh, the security guard asked him, what are you doing going in and out? So did the security guard make a report? Did they check did they check the surveillance video? So Buffalo shooting suspect wrote of plans five months ago. He wrote in increasing detail of his plans to murder dozens of black people in statements posted online. So review one of 600 pages of messages that this guy uploaded in April. He resolved to kill those he slurred as replaces. He decided in February to target Buffalo Tops grocery store based on its local African-American population. So in March, he performed a... Connison style trip to monitor the store security and to map out its aisles when a store guard confronted him about why he'd repeatedly entered that day 
Peyton Gendron made excuses and fled in what he described as a close call. Yeah, but uh, did the supermarket follow up on this? Did they did they check this guy out? That's what I wonder. Okay, back to Steve Saylor's comment section. So, part, large part of the manifesto is all about what guns, what ammo is using, what helmet, what vest. That's more than half of the document. It's kind of a how-to. It reads like a file he kept adding to while planning, and he just pasted it into his document. Then the next section, the manifesto touches on politics, immigrant rapists, diversity is a scam, radicalization of white men, avert assassination calls for various prominent globalists, immigration, birth rates, white Europe, and signs off with, as for me, my time has come, goodbye, God bless you all, and I hope to see you in Valhalla. So the kid writes well, seems pretty smart, maybe you just use a good spell checker, but the text is generally clear, concise, organized, something that Grammarly just couldn't accomplish. So other than the fact that he ended up a mass murderer, I see no obvious signs he is particularly mentally ill. So in that sense, it's particularly scary. And let us remember Jeffrey Dahmer. I don't murder and consume boys of color because I hate them. I murder and consume boys of color because I love them. Which Democrat megadonor Ed Buck might add, people just don't realize how easy it is to kill the homeless black men you love, especially when it is your fetish to murder them. And off topic, did anyone notice that it was Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin who made the phone call to the Russian Minister of Defense to talk about a ceasefire? That means that both Biden and Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, who should have made the call, are uh, particularly useless at their jobs. Okay, so one uh, important book that I've read in the past few years is by Dave Grossman. It's called On Combat, The Psychology and Physiology of Deadly Conflict in War and in Peace. So we've had violent video games for several decades now. Many kids who played them years ago are now in their 20s, 30s, 40s, right? Uh, the exact age group of the average perpetrator our law enforcement officers are confronting every day out on the streets. So when talking about conditioned reflexes, we must also talk about violent video games, understand how we can make killing a conditioned reflex. Stimulus response, stimulus response, stimulus response. It is important to understand how the average opponent has been trained. Does a kid playing a violent video game shoot at blank man-shaped silhouettes? How about bullseye targets? Right? So, yeah, I think uh, violent video games play a role in all of this. Not name factor, but they play a pretty significant Ingram, role. This is the Ingram Angle live from New York City tonight. The real accomplices. That's the focus of tonight's angle. Now, when the CCP sees dissent building anywhere inside China, it moves really quickly to shut it down, scrubbing all of it from their social media, such as what happened over the weekend when more than 200 students protested all those harsh COVID measures that are in place at Peking University. They're brave kids. Because if the offenders' views are deemed to be a danger to the communist state, a real danger, they'll be arrested, and if released, their passports confiscated. Well, that's what they did, remember, to that poor Cardinal Joseph Zen in Hong Kong. The reflex to silence opposition voices in a totalitarian state is one thing. But now it's also the impulse of Democrats here. With the November blowout looming and their party on the ropes, they're acting more like President Xi than President Kennedy or Bill Clinton. Their new motto seems to be, if you can't beat them, use your corporate shills to censor them. The justification is always some hurt.
So Laura Ingram was about the first major uh, media figure to hail Trump, to say that uh, Donald Trump was showing the way that he should become the Republican nominee and he had a good chance of winning in 2016. So she was about the first major media figure to take him seriously. Question in the chat, what do I estimate is the average IQ of my listenership? I would say probably 115, which is, I think, the average IQ of a college graduate. And uh, Apricot Sky is not just a movie, it's a movement. And this scene that I've been playing from Apricot Sky, it's as famous as From Here to Eternity. <laughs> Even when it's in 280 <laughs> definition. But that's that's the best I got, mate. That's the best I got. Okay, Dave Grossman on video games. So when you play video games, you're shooting at people, vivid, realistic depictions of people. The holy grail of the video game industry is realism. Every year they get more real. So I started watching The Lincoln Lawyer on Netflix, and the murderer in that show is someone who's become incredibly rich by making his video game characters even more realistic. So these incredibly lifelike characters bleed, twitch, sweat, beg, fall, and die all before the eyes of the impressionable young players. And today's video games offer a completely different type of play than my generation engaged in. When I was little and playing Cops and Robbers, I said, bang, bang, I got you. Jimmy said, no, you didn't, right? So one of the lessons that you learn is Jimmy is real, right? And if I hurt him, I get into big trouble. So for thousands of years, kids have whacked each other with wooden swords or played bang, bang, I got you. This was just play. Now kids are immersed in a virtual reality environment where they repeatedly blow their virtual hyper-realistic playmates heads off in explosions of blood and gore. Does that get them into trouble? No, they get awarded points. This is pathological and dysfunctional. Right? When kittens and puppies play, they gnaw at each other's throats. But when one of them gets hurt, the play stops and mama walks over to see what's going on. Video game industry says the images on the screen are not real people. This is true, but people are getting trained. There is a hyper-reality effect. Kids increasingly begin to think of the hyper-real as more meaningful than the reality it relates to. So the American Medical Association, American Psychological Association, American Academy of Pediatrics, and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry in July 2000 made a joint statement to both houses of Congress. They say, well, over 1,000 studies point overwhelmingly to a causal connection between media violence and aggressive behavior in some children. The negative impact of interactive electronic media, meaning violent video games, may be significantly more severe than that wrought by TV, movies, or music. So I think that... that Movies and, and music and, and TV also probably exacerbate our crime rate. So when Africa, South Africa finally accepted television, they had a very significant jump in their murder rate. So other research indicates children who are least aggressive in nature, but once exposed to violent video games, become more likely to get into fights than children who are naturally very aggressive but do not play violent video games. Children who play violent video games see the world as a more hostile place. They argue with their teachers more frequently. They're more likely to be involved in physical fights, and they don't perform well in school. So for the first time in human history, we're dealing with a large-scale epidemic of preteen and teenage mass murderers. And the autopilot impact of these mass murder simulators has been obvious from the earliest of the school massacres. Horrific shooting or a protest that goes wrong. 
And if the facts line up just right for them, they tag Republicans for it. And they did that, of course, with this weekend's horrific attack in Buffalo by a deranged racist. Social media platforms that need to be monitored and shut down the second these words are espoused out there in that, these platforms, it has to stop. Obviously, you have to balance the free speech issues, but freedom is so important to us. But that freedom also carries a, a public safety with it, and we have to balance those. Oh, thanks, Nancy, because it's always portrayed, isn't it, as a noble endeavor when the left, of course, wants to limit your speech. It's only a few key words. Key words show up. They need to be identified. Someone needs to watch this and to shut it down the second it appears. And short of that, I, we will protect the right to free speech, but there is a limit. Perhaps she thinks, I don't know, we're stupid as her party in Albany is corrupt, but we're not. The angle, as always, condemns all violence and believes in the most stringent prosecution of all violent crimes. Like the overwhelming majority of law-abiding Americans. Okay, guys, turn, turn, turn around. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. I see the picture falling. The pattern changed again. Bye bye. It seems that nothing ever lasts. I've been around this and falling inside myself again. I know that. Turn around.